Hello and welcome to the UCL News Podcast. I'm George. And I'm Claire. On this week's podcast, we've got Dr Nicola Rayhani talking about strange behaviour in cleaner fish. And we also find out a bit more about Jeremy Bentham and his mummified head. And we've also got Henry with us in the podcast to give us the latest enterprise news. Hello. Hi, Henry. It's nice to have you back again. Hi. Nice to be back. I think it's time we uh, got you a proper kind of business jingle to uh, signify your your return each each show. I'm looking forward to it. Yeah, it'd be good. Mm, business time. Business time, indeed. <laughs> but first, the news. Um, this week, Oxfam has launched a mobile phone scheme called Shelf Life that lets customers find out about the stories behind secondhand goods it sells in its shops. Oxfam is using technology developed as part of the Tales of Things project led by Andrew Hudson-Smith from UCL's Centre for Advanced Spatial Analysis. The Shelf Life phone app uses QR codes to link stories and pictures provided by the donors of the items to tags attached to the goods. You can then scan these tags using the app to find out about an individual item's past. According to Andy, the plan is to change every Oxfam shop into an interactive social museum and give secondhand goods more meaning. I just love the idea that, you know, in the past when you're wandering around charity shops and secondhand stores, you never really know the past, you know, the, these sure. objects past. And now it'd be really cool to find out their, 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 their backstory. But moving on, um, we have Henry to give us the latest news about the Wilson Review, which is an independent review into improving the relationship between business and universities in the UK. Henry, tell us, tell us more. Yes, yeah, so the Wilson Review uh, was published earlier this week um, and it was commissioned by the government from uh, Professor Sir Tim Wilson, who's the former Vice-Chancellor of the University of Hertfordshire. And basically, it's looking into how to make universities and businesses work better together um, and to make the UK the best place for that to happen. Um, it has a, a huge range of recommendations, um, ranging from encouraging students to do internships in their summer vacations um, and to encouraging the growth of sandwich degrees so that students spend a year in industry as well as obviously doing three years of studying. Um, and also encouraging universities to work with small businesses as well because they have a huge potential for growth and to contribute to our kind of economic recovery. Yeah, definitely. I mean, as you say, it's kind of a big report. There are lots of findings. There's a lot of detail in there. But um, some really important things in terms of innovation and business could come out of this. Um, coming back to the, the UCL focus, what are we doing here at UCL to promote business and kind of innovation and enterprise? Well, we're doing a whole, a whole host of things, really. I mean, the, the main thing probably is UCL Advances, which is the university's centre for um, entrepreneurship. And UCL Advances is doing a whole range of things. So it's supporting students that want to set up their own businesses, for example, uh, with funding, mentoring, boot camps, teaching them business skills, all of that kind of thing. And it's also supporting small businesses in London as well. I mean, now more than ever, really, they need support to kind of grow and, and to contribute to the economy. 
So UCL Advances is providing them with the support and, and the expertise that university can provide, really. And we also have UCL Business, which is the university's technology transfer office. And basically, they uh, take research from the lab and uh, take it into the real world through spin-out companies, for example, uh, or um, licensing technology to, to big companies already out there. So we're already doing, already doing a lot here at UCL. Um, and really, we need to see that happening at, at universities across the country if we are going to make the UK the best place for businesses to work with the universities. Fantastic. Henry, that's brilliant. Thanks for coming on the podcast and hopefully see you again soon. Absolutely. Thanks. And um, talking of risky business, we've got some interesting news for those of you with a more rebellious nature. Researchers led by Professor Chris Frith at the Wellcome Trust Centre for Neuroimaging have found the link between the amount of grey matter in one specific brain region and an individual's likelihood of conforming to social pressures. So during the experiment, to measure how participants responded to social influence, they were tested to see how their preferences for certain pieces of music changed after being told what authoritative music critics thought about them. Strikingly, only grey matter volume in one precise brain region, the lateral orbitofrontal cortex, if you got that right, which is involved in decision making along with emotion and reward, was associated with this measure of social influence. Um, the findings suggest that the brain region is particularly tuned in to recognising cues of social conflict, such as when someone disapproves of a choice, which may prompt the subject to update their opinions. Very interesting research. Um, so that's all the news we got for this show. But stay tuned to hear about my recent trip to meet Professor Philip Schofield and Dr. Tim Kauser of UCL's Bentham Project, where I found out a little bit more about Jeremy Bentham and just what happened to his head when it was stolen by King students. But first, familiarity with your partner is usually thought to promote teamwork. But a new paper in the Proceedings of the Royal Society B has found that, in cleaner fish at least, Familiarity, in fact, breeds contempt. To find out more about this intriguing finding, we went to chat to lead author Dr Nicola Ray Harney. My name's Nicola Rayhani and um, my research focuses on the evolution of cooperation in nature. And so basically when individuals or genes or cells come together, they have to forego their own personal short-term interests in order to act for the greater good. So what people like me are interested in usually is, well, how do those individuals actually benefit ultimately from what looks like altruistic behaviour? And, and what we know is that in most cases, um, individuals can derive either immediate direct benefits from, from their behaviour, from cooperative behaviour, or they benefit because they help um, individuals that they're related to. But the cleaner fish are quite cool in a way because they are much more similar to the kind of cooperation that we see among humans um, in the sense that cleaner fish regularly cooperate with individuals that they're not related to and individuals that they've never met before and individuals that they've never likely to meet again. These cleaner fish, they live in 
they're territorial and they live in these groups which are um, one male and then around up to 16 females. So the male's got a harem of females there with him. And the biggest female that um, is on that territory, um, sometimes that female and the male will work together to clean one client. And so um, the client will swim up to the, clean, to the cleaner fish and both the male and the female will start removing eggs parasites together. And in that situation, the, it's, the cleaner fish actually are, have a conflict of interest between each other because um, both of them would like it if they could bite the client and eat that tasty morsel of mucus that they might get from doing that. But the problem with biting the client is it might leave, right? And that means that dinner has suddenly left. So basically when the female and the male work together, the female behaves way better than she does when she works alone. And the reason that she behaves so much better when she works with a male to clean a client is because if she cheats and that causes the client to leave, then the male is really aggressive to her and he'll punish her and chase her around. And, um, and so basically male punishment of females makes females behave more cooperatively towards the clients. And what we found was that um, in the pair, in the pairwise client inspections, so when they're, when they're feeding on a joint client, if the female cheats, the unfamiliar male is more aggressive than the familiar male partner. So th the main striking thing is that as a consequence of this male punishment the un from the unfamiliar males, females were actually behaved much more cooperatively with unfamiliar males than they did with their familiar male partner. So because they could get away with cheating more with the familiar partner, they just cheated more. And all the theory predicts and most of the empirical data support the idea that you cooperate more with a familiar partner. And so we weren't really expecting to find the opposite result. But when we thought about the mechanisms that sustain cooperation in this system, because cooperation is basically based on punishment, then it kind of makes more sense to think about you, you're less likely to punish an individual that if you've got overlapping fitness interests with them. And so based on that, then, then it kind of makes sense that you should maybe be more cooperative with an unfamiliar partner because the unfamiliar partner is going to hit the roof if you cheat, basically. The Bentham Project was established over 50 years ago in order to produce a new scholarly edition of Bentham's works. Bentham didn't only leave his corpse, his body to UCL, he also left his, his corpus, his writings, his manuscripts to the UCL library. And there are about 60,000 folios of manuscripts. It's a massive collection, perhaps the most important unedited philosophical collection in, in, in the world. My name's Philip Schofield. I'm director of the Bentham Project, which is part of UCL's Faculty of Laws. Now, we have, we have this, in a sense, this problem about having all these manuscripts. They're not easy to read. Um, we need them to be transcribed. And so we've developed Transcribe Bentham as a crowdsourcing exercise. My name's Tim Causer. 
and I'm a research associate here at the Bentham Project. Transcribe Bentham is a uh, crowdsourced manuscript transcription project um, where we have, we're progressively digitising the, the Bentham collection here at UCL, which is about 60,000 manuscript folios. Um, and we make them available via this thing called the transcription desk, which is the, the, the transcription website and interface. And the, uh, anybody in the world can volunteer to, to help us transcribe the material. And they're presented on one side of the screen with the, the image of the manuscript and on the other a text box and into that they, they transcribe the, the manuscript and it will really preserve the collection as well for anybody else who wants to, to use it. Because a lot of this material um, we don't necessarily know what's in there ourselves, uh, still yet to be explored. Jeremy Bentham was born in 1748 and died in 1832. He lived most of his life in London. He developed the theory known as utilitarianism which states that the right action is that which and produces the greatest amount of happiness. In terms of UCL, he had very little practical involvement in the founding of the college, but his ideas were extremely inspirational. He himself had been educated at Oxford. He described Oxford and Cambridge as the two great public nuisances, um, partly because they were only open to Anglicans, to members of the Church of England, and, uh, and so he wanted education to be available to all. And he also didn't like the curriculum. And so those sorts of ideas, open access and a wide curriculum, were very inspirational in terms of the founding of UCL. In relation to the auto-icon, the, um, the actual preserved skeleton dressed in his clothes with, with what you now see as the wax head. I think that is probably an attack on religion. He didn't want, for instance, um, his body to be buried because he would have to pay a fee to a priest in order for that to take place. So instead, he, he, what he wanted was actually his bodily organs to be displayed around the auto-icon. And again, this was related to his um, interest in medicine, because he wanted people to see that the, the body was actually a wonderful mechanism. And um, instead of sort of being appalled or repelled by body parts, people should come along and see just how, how wonderful the body was. And um, again, that would promote interest in, in medical research. He also saw it as um, a place for his disciples to come and pay homage to their, to their master. But I think there's a lot of sort of humour involved in it. Uh, some people have, have interpreted it as the first postmodern piece of art, which um, isn't a bad interpretation, I think. Well, one of the common stories about the head, Bentham's head, being stolen by students from King's College as part of their Rag Week celebrations, I think this was back in the 1970s, um, but um, that's not my favourite story as such, but it's the fact that um, there was a story that when they took the head, they went and um, deposited it in a left luggage locker in Aberdeen, and that the then um, general editor of the Bentham Project, Professor Burns, had to go up to Aberdeen to reclaim it. So it's just the, this image of this eminent scholar travelling up on the train to his hometown of Aberdeen to, with a, a key to um, extract Bentham's head from some, some left luggage locker, I think, is, is, is a very, very nice story. I did ask Professor Burns about that um, at one point, and he, he, 
he denied that there was any truth in it whatsoever. But still, <laughs> it's, uh, it's a nice myth. <laughs>